dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Friends, together you and I have a rendezvous with one of the greatest speeches of the 20th century. The speech that Robert F. Kennedy gave to a largely black crowd after learning that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4th, 1968. This is a tale of sorrow, suffering, and redemption. We're going to explore Robert F. Kennedy's love of the poet Aeschylus, how it healed him, and how it transformed him from the hard-charging fixer for his brother John F. Kennedy to what political called the most trusted white man for people of color in the United States. And we're also really excited to be joined by one of the leading singer-songwriters in the state of Iowa, Corey Grimm, um, who has composed a special piece dedicated to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., as well as a song that is near and dear to his heart on racial justice and reconciliation, Main Street and Fifth Avenue. Together we're going to walk through incredible valleys, but we're also going to find rays of hope because there is some good news out there. I'm going to share some personal stories and experiences that I've had in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the most tragic places in the United States, but I would argue one of the most hopeful places in the United States. So let's go ahead and get started and set the scene for one of the greatest speeches of the 20th century. Brothers and sisters, this is going to be a podcast where we're really going to explore the depths of our feeling relating to the evil that we see in the world, especially as it pertains to what happens when a person of color is killed, especially by an evil white person. Merely two months ago, February 23rd, 2020, an unarmed black man, Ahmaud Arbery, was out jogging. And two white men, without cause, chased him down and killed him. When events like these happen, I don't know about what your response is, but my response is complete rage. Oh no, I can't believe it's happening again. When will it ever stop? Will we ever get to a point in this country of ours where our especially black brothers and sisters of color can live their lives in peace and live their lives in dignity without enduring racism. And when things like these happen, the first thing that always comes across my mind is what do I as a white person do? Because I don't think claiming that we are not racist, I don't think that's good enough. I don't think establishing our own lack of prejudice, don't think that's good enough either. So often when events like this happen, we share it on Facebook, we express our feelings, we explain how we're not racist, we lament racism, but I don't think that that's good enough anymore. The question I think we all have to ask ourselves is what are we going to do? 
what risks are we going to take? Because I think that's ultimately what it, what it comes down to. Words alone are not enough. There does come a point when all of our lives, when we have to be willing to risk our own to allow others to live in peace. That's the decision that civil rights workers Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner made as northern white students who made the decision to travel south into Mississippi to register people of color to vote. In 1964, they made that choice and they knew that when they went down to 1964 Mississippi, they were placing their lives on the line. And they, along with another person of color, James Cheney, were killed for advancing racial justice. And I think that that is the situation that Bobby Kennedy finds himself in April 4th, 1968, the night that he gave this incredible speech when everyone heard the news that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed by likely a white racist. How did Bobby Kennedy get to the point where as a white person, he had the credibility and the ability to speak these words of comfort and healing when someone like Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed? Because I don't know about you, but I don't only view Martin Luther King Jr. as a hero, I view him as a prophet, as a savior, and can you imagine for people of color? I mean, he was like Moses delivering his people to freedom. And to see him who had preached nonviolence his whole life to be killed violently for just speaking out on behalf of his brothers and sisters of color to be treated with dignity and equality. Can you imagine the rage that you must have felt or that the people of color must have felt on April 4th, 1968? And that's what Bobby Kennedy found himself on on April 4th. He had just announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States only a month, less than a month before, in mid-March, of 1968 that he was going to seek the presidency. And he found himself having to speak to a largely all-black crowd to try to know what to say. This is someone, it was not at all inevitable that Bobby Kennedy would seek the presidency. In early 1968, he only had a few years of experience as a United States Senator. He was still grieving the loss of his brother, John F. Kennedy, Bobby did not have the natural skills and charisma that that John F. Kennedy had. He was an awkward speaker. I think he had a natural shyness to him. And you can see that in some of his early speeches, especially in his campaign for the U.S. Senate seat in New York, 
where he just seems awkward. He's not natural. Can you imagine being compared to one of the greatest people of the 20th century, John F. Kennedy, constantly trying to carry on his legacy when in his own heart, he did not feel that he really was good enough. And he also knew when he made that decision to run in early 1968, he had to have known that he was placing himself at risk. The situation he was in where he had all the wealth, all the power, all the access, family that he loved, and one of the most beautiful places in the United States, along the East Coast and Nantucket. Why would he give all of that up to seek the presidency? Well, I'm not a historian and I don't have direct primary sources as to what actually tipped him over the edge. But if you read any of his speeches or listen to them or read his biographies, I think what you will see one thing very, very clear about Robert Kennedy is he truly did his great skill, his gift, was that he really did identify with people who suffered, with people that were in pain, with people that were not treated fairly. You see that very clearly when he went out and stood with the field workers in California. You see it very clearly in the ways in which his real true focus was on African-American districts in the inner city that traditionally did not have higher voting rates for a variety of reasons, discrimination, lack of access. His focus politically was not on people who were the traditional middle American voters. It was for people who suffered, for people that were the underdog, for people that had been left out. He wanted to give them the same access to the American dream that his family had experienced. You hear that helicopter in the background? I was going to edit that out, but I left it in because it's like a serendipitous sound effect for the sound of the choppers in Vietnam that was the background sound for so many Americans that had lost their lives in Vietnam and the background sound in Robert F. Kennedy's own mind as he decided whether to run and to give access to people that have been entirely left out of the political system. You know, one of the most beautiful songs in the English language is Amazing Grace. And what I love about it so much is the way in which the white person begins to see the suffering of the black person. White people have a kind of blindness. We all do. I'm not condemning but we do have a type of blindness as to the suffering that people of color have endured in terms of the historical legacy of slavery, in terms of discrimination, 
in terms of constant suffering, in terms of having to wake up and see your, your friends, your mentors, your colleagues suffer another unjust death like Ahmad Arbery. White people can never fully see, but I think there are moments where we do experience a glimpse, a partial glimpse of the suffering that occurs. And I think Robert F. Kennedy saw that. You know, the night before Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, he gave a transformative speech where he said that he had gone up on the highest mountaintop and he had seen the promised land. And he had said that he didn't know if he would get there with us, but that's where we're going. I think RFK went out on that mountaintop with him and he, and he did see the potential, the joy, the ability of all of the children of color to see their full potential reached and to get a sound job and to fully participate in the American dream. I think he went up on that mountaintop and he also saw the promised land. But he also knew that we could not get there as a country unless we also went through the valleys until we also suffered. And I think that's ultimately what all white people at some point need to confront is what are we willing to do? What risks are we willing to take? And I'm not going to necessarily tell all of you that you have to go and you have to make the same decision that Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner did, leaving their life of privilege to face incalculable risks, or even the decision that Bobby Kennedy did. But I think you need to ask yourself that question. You need to confront that. You need to be willing to march. Sometimes you need to be willing to just shut up and listen. And I always need to remember that too. Sometimes we just need to shut up and listen and figure out how we can be helpful. I think of that scene in Malcolm X where there's two idealistic white students that said to Malcolm, how can we help? And he said, you can get away. We don't want you right now. We don't want your help right this second. We need to stand ready. We need to stand at the beck and call, but we must subsume our own egos to the leadership in the community of color and stand with them and be ready to serve in whatever way we are asked to do. And I think Bobby felt that call, that real call to stand up and to use his position of power and privilege to seek the presidency so that we could truly have a president that elevated everyone, regardless of their skin color, regardless of where they were born, regardless of the circumstances they were born into. And so that's the scene that we have in April 4th, 1968, the night that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed, the night that Bobby Kennedy had a planned campaign stop in an underprivileged area of Indianapolis in which he was scheduled to speak to a largely um, black crowd 
when he learned of the news of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. That's where we were on that night. And the speech you're about to hear, I think, will give you chills. And I hope it will provide a guide to you as to what you must do in your own life to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. And he once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black.
We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. That, my friends, is one of the most beautiful speeches of the 20th century. And what gives it its true power? The quote from Aeschylus, the great Greek poet. In our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. There are very few white men who could have made that speech in 1968 with any credibility at all. And in fact, Robert Kennedy was not the most trusted white man in the United States merely five years earlier in 1963. There's a really good article in Politico called The Most Trusted White Man in Black America by Larry Dye. He wrote it in 2016. And he outlines Robert F. Kennedy's original um, meetings with a lot of civil rights leaders in the mid-summer of 1963, and it did not go well. He showed a really lack of understanding of what black people were going through in the South. He even used the old, my father was Irish and was discriminated against too thing, and that did not go over very well. And so he went from that in the summer of 1963 to be able to give a speech of such power and empathy and beauty that he literally calmed and soothed a crowd that had just heard some of the worst news in their entire life. What helped that transformation? It was the wisdom that he obtained through the suffering after his brother passed away, John F. Kennedy. Robert F. Kennedy, after his brother passed away, went into a deep, deep depression, and he could not get out of it. And in fact, if you have the opportunity to read or watch um, American Experience, there's a portion where they show Robert F. Kennedy reading the poetry of Romeo and Juliet. In one of his first speeches following the death of his brother in the 1964 Democratic Convention, and he used this quote from Romeo and Juliet. When he shall die, take him and cut him out into the stars, and he shall make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. He was in a deep amount of pain. 
And he couldn't get out of that pain. And the Bible was not enough. So it was actually Jackie Kennedy who turned him on to the Greek poet Aeschylus, one of the great Greek poets of tragedy. And it is through Jackie that Bobby discovered the Greek poet Aeschylus. The beauty of Aeschylus's poetry helped Robert F. Kennedy to grieve following the death of his brother and helped them to understand suffering and the condition of humanity in terms of how we suffer. And it gave him the perfect words when he spoke on that night on April 4th of 1968. And that was the first time that Robert F. Kennedy had publicly shared the pain of the death of his own brother during that speech. So who was this Aeschylus? Aeschylus was the first great Greek poet and dramatist. He wrote the Arestia, which is a trilogy of Greek tragedies written by Aeschylus in the 5th century BC. Agamemnon, the first play in this trilogy, relays the bloody story of a family of Agamemnon, king of Argos, who was murdered in cold blood. And it is from this play of Agamemnon from which we hear the chorus wail the following words, God whose law it is that he who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And in our own despair, against our own will, comes wisdom by the awful grace of God. And it is that awful grace and wisdom that Robert F. Kennedy used in both his political career as well as his uh, ability to give a speech of that power that he did in April 4th of 1968. But it gets even more powerful. As he concludes his speech, he talks about the Greeks' great desire to, quote, tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. That statement is almost more powerful than the quote from Aeschylus. To tame the savageness of mankind and make gentle the life of this world. As I was getting ready for this podcast, I have a super talented brother-in-law. And his name is Corey Grimm. And I asked him if he could do something with any part of the speech. And this is really what he zeroed in on. And came up with just incredibly beautiful original new music. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did because I thought it was incredibly powerful. And he did it less than a night. So when I was talking about him being one of the best singer-songwriters in the state of Iowa, I was not joking. And it was not just because he's my brother-in-law. You're just going to have to listen to this. It is awesome. So here it is. To Tame the Savageness of Man by Corey Grimm. ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people.
of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. a man and make gentle the life of this world. When we started this podcast, I asked you, what are we as white people willing to do to tame the savageness of mankind? Are we just going to use words or are we going to put our own lives on the line? And that's clearly the choice that was before Robert F. Kennedy and when he decided to run for president. And if he had any doubt whatsoever as to the risk that he was facing, April 4th removed all doubt as to the risk that he was truly facing. And I'm now going to share a little bit of a personal story um, because I think it does really directly relate to April 4th, and that's June 5th, 1968. Many of you who know me know that I love politics, and I love to go on walks with my dogs, Percy and Ray. And about a month and a half ago, in the early stages of the COVID pandemic, I was out on a walk, and I was walking down the street, and I ran into a friend of mine um, who's also a folk singer in town, and we both discovered our shared love of the great Iowa governor, Harold Hughes. And we talked about what it would be like to have a progressive governor in the state of Iowa once again. And this person told me, he said, you know, Rock, he said, I grew up in a conservative household. But I heard the speech that Harold Hughes gave when we learned that Robert F. Kennedy had been shot and killed. I heard it and it was so inspiring. He said it absolutely changed my life. That tragedy was a little more than two months following the death of Martin Luther King Jr. And Robert F. Kennedy was to join him on that highest mountaintop in heaven, sacrificing their own lives so that we all could strive and we could all thrive. And so I said, gosh, wouldn't it be awesome to get that speech, to hear it? He said, I don't know if I can do it, but I think I can get it from the University of Iowa archives. And so the speech that I'm about to read a portion of was the speech that Harold E. Hughes gave to the Iowa Boys State at Camp Dodge on June 5th, 1968, when we learn about the death of Robert F. Kennedy after he had been shot and killed at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. 
Here's the speech. We meet here tonight at a time when our entire nation is in a state of unbelieving shock and grief. I ask you to join with me in a moment of silent prayer for the recovery of Senator Kennedy and for the comforting of his family and horrified and grief-stricken nation. When great Americans like this are insanely attacked, men like President John F. Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King, and now Senator Kennedy, I believe the most appropriate and suitable reaction is to rededicate ourselves to the great goals for which they stood. This is the way that they would want it. Such men as these know they walk in great danger, and they are more than willing to do this for the sake of what they believe in. It would be the ultimate disrespect for Senator Kennedy to cite this appalling tragedy as reason for repressing liberty, rejecting human rights, and impairing justice the very causes for which he was willing to risk his life. As deprived the minority people throughout the land pray for this leader they have known to be the champion of their cause, I think the appropriate text is from St. Matthew. Insomuch as ye have done it unto the least of these brethren, ye have done it unto me. And that portion of the speech perfectly encapsulates what Robert F. Kennedy meant to the people of this nation as well as the people of color. And it was what he knew that he was doing. And so when Robert F. Kennedy completed his life, he did make that ultimate sacrifice for the betterment of everyone. So here we are in 2020, and we're still faced with racial tragedy like what happened with Ahmaud Arbery. So the struggle continues, and I think the key for us is to never get up, give up. Friends of the show, you know I've been a little bit preachy here, but I think it's extremely important that we do everything within our power to confront racial injustice, and not only to talk about it, but every single one of us is going to be asked at some point, what are we willing to do? Are we willing to take risks on behalf of our brothers and sisters of color, if called, like heroes like James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner? Young people that risked everything for voting rights in the South in the early 60s, as well as heroes like Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy. They gave their lives for racial justice, reconciliation, and healing. So I want to explore a little bit more of this topic of to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Is that a possibility or is that just poetry? Is that just words? Is it possible to take a savage place and restore it to a spirit of gentleness and reconciliation and healing? Well, if we're to look in a place of pure savagery in the United States, we need to look no further than Birmingham, Alabama in the early 1960s. Birmingham at the time was the tip of the spear 
of white supremacy and oppression in the American South. It was the home of Bull Connor, who was the infamous counselor and commissioner in the city of Birmingham that led countless campaigns against civil rights organizers, that collaborated with racists that turned the other way as other racists committed acts of violence against civil rights workers and leaders. It was location on December 15th of 1963 of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in which four teenage African-American girls were killed when racists put a bomb at a church. This is how evil a place it was at that time. The people of color could not even find respite in their own church. And they lost little girls through acts of horrible savagery and violence. And we'll never forget the names of those young women who died on that day because they are part of the sacred memory of this great country of ours. And their names are Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. And that act of savagery occurred right under the nose of Bull Connor. And many of those crimes were not even prosecuted until 40 to 50 years later by heroes like current Senator Doug Jones, who would never forget and would always stand up when he finally brought some of those racists to justice. So it does not get much worse than early 1960s Birmingham. As a city councilor, I had an opportunity uh, to tour the American South with a civil rights group here in the city of Iowa City. Our community is very blessed to have local legends that, that stand up and that are good mentors and that make sure that we never forget the victories that have been won, but also push us forward. Um, people like Roy Sand Porter, Henry Harper, um, together they had organized a yearly civil rights tour in which they would take young African-American teens of color um, to the American South so that they could reconnect with their roots, they could tour historically black colleges, and we could see some of the sacred sites of the Civil Rights Trail, places like Memphis, Tennessee, Birmingham, Alabama, Montgomery, and countless other places like Selma and the Ed Edmund Pettus Bridge. Well, for me, when I was on that tour, um, one of the most inspiring spots was Birmingham, Alabama. We went there so we could visit the 6th Street Baptist Church. But I thought even more inspirational was visiting the police and fire departments in Birmingham. Now, I don't know about you. Um, police are very important. They protect us. Um, not super exciting when you're on tour, though, right? So you wouldn't think that that would be a really inspiring place. But remember where Birmingham was in the early 60s, is those same police, the ones that were to protect, were not there to protect everyone. They were there to be the tip of the spear for white supremacy at that time. That's just a fact. And they looked the other way when acts of violence occurred, and in some cases committed those acts of violence in which put the fire hoses on the young civil rights protesters. They collaborated with people who murdered people of color and threatened them. Could not be much worse. 
But to see the leadership of the city of Birmingham now, I'm telling you people, if you ever get the chance to go there, oh my gosh, it's so inspiring. Like any city, they still have problems. It's not utopia. They still have crime. They still have issues to work on. And they still have their fights just like we do here in the city of Iowa City. But seeing that police and fire department, I'm telling you, it was, it was, it was amazing. We also had the opportunity to, to visit one of the most dynamic mayors in the American South, Randall Woodfin, who at the time was a 37-year-old mayor. And he taught a group of us. Um, we had the opportunity to take the kids to the city hall. And Mayor Woodfin was able to take some time and talk to some of the kids. And one of the most inspirational parts of that was... Um, we were in City Hall, and Mayor Woodfin had talked about his recent election to mayor. But he also pointed out a chamber just behind where we were sitting. And he said, you know, in that chamber, nearly 10 yards away from where you're sitting, was where Bull Connor held court, where he planned his acts, where he maintained American apartheid, where he planned all of his acts of terror against civil rights workers in the American South. And now over 50 years later, here we are. Young, dynamic leader of color, presiding over an incredible police department. And that's where I wanted to follow up on. You know, here in the city of Iowa City, we struggle, we struggle. We love all of our officers, regardless of what color they are, but we also believe it's absolutely important that we make sure that the men and women who protect our community also reflect our community. And we've really struggled to place officers of color. We've made some progress. But we always know the number that we have. We have five officers. And so when we visited a um, community policing center, in the city of Birmingham, I asked one of the officers, I said, well, what percentage of officers in your department are people of color? And first of all, all the officers that were there were black. And he, he sort of smiled and he said, you know, he said, I really don't know. I think we pretty much all are. Um, of course, we have some white officers too, but it was a completely integrated department full of men and women that reflected their community, that served with pride. And I think a lot of the young people really connected with and it was really inspiring to see that. And I was just thinking, you know, when Martin Luther King Jr. gave that speech a day before he died, and he said he climbed to the mountaintop and he had seen the promised land, I don't think he was talking about an abstract dream. I think what he was seeing was places like Birmingham, Alabama, where you could have a police department that was nearly... 80% black that reflected the underlying population in the community that served and connected with the, with the young people that's, that lived there. And they struggled just like anywhere else. But I tell you what, civil rights protesters in today's Birmingham would, would not be treated they were in the early 60s. They would likely be marching with a lot of those officers. And I bet a lot of those mar those officers in the city of Birmingham have walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And then after visiting the police department, we also went to the, the fire department. Because some of the signature granny photos that you see in those early civil rights protests were those firemen using those hoses against those unarmed protesters. 
It wasn't just water, it was water shot out of a water cannon. So powerful that it could knock you off your feet and, and strip, strip your skin off, right? It was that intense. And I talked actually to some white fire or some black firemen, but also a few of the white officers that was that were serving, and they were very open about the shame of what the department had done in the early '60s. And he said that there were a lot of officers and firemen that had served in the early '90s before they retired who were actually part of those crews, and that was really amazing to hear. Um, that officer re recite some of those stories of those officers confronting what they had done. Because I believe no matter what we've done in life, we all have the opportunity for forgiveness. You know, in some of my earlier podcasts, I've talked about Nelson, Nelson Mandela being one of my heroes. And Nelson was able to forgive his jailers and seek reconciliation with the same people that had oppressed his people over the course of his entire lifetime. And so similarly... I think especially the fire department and the men, primarily the men who served at the time, had to come to terms with that, with what they had done and how they were to respond into the future. And I think one of the things about the department that I observed was is they were not defensive. They did not seek to justify, obviously. They were very, very open about their painful history. And that's one of the things you see in the American South that I think in a lot of ways differs from what you see with race relations in the North is that you rarely see people in the North especially really directly confront racial prejudice. You rarely see it. I think in the American South, you can't ignore it. You're directly confronted with it every single day. And so I think that's why with leaders like Robert F. Kennedy, and the way that he was able to connect with that crowd of color on that night, and when he talked about to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world, I believe he, like Martin Luther King Jr., believed that it could happen, and I believe that it can happen because I've seen places that have been tamed of their savageness. You can say a lot of things about Birmingham, Alabama, but it is no longer a place where a person like Bull Connor and his goons can exist. It has been transformed from that place to a dynamic place where you fly into the Fred Shuttlesworth Airport, the great civil rights leader who fought against racial segregation in the 60s, where you have dynamic leaders like Randall Woodfin, inspirational late 30-something that's leading the city to do great things, where you have a police department that is so integrated and so multicultural that they've almost lost count of how many minority officers they've had, where you have a fire department that is open and honest about its own painful history but has moved forward to a department of equal opportunity for all. It is possible. We can never give up. It is truly possible to live up to, in reality to the power of that poetry. We can tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world, but we have to struggle for it. We have to risk for it. We have to remember those who paid the ultimate price for it, like Martin Luther King Jr. who died on that date in April 4th, 1968, 
and like Robert F. Kennedy, who gave his life so that everyone had opportunity to live in this great country of ours. We'll never forget Robert F. Kennedy, and I'll never forget that speech that he gave on April 4th, 1968, one of the best speeches of the 20th century. So this concludes our fifth Rockney cast. Um, This has been a tough one for me. I thought it was going to be easier than it was, in part because it's such a powerful topic, such a powerful leader, such an incredible moment in American history. I think that made it that much harder. So thanks for staying with me this far on my fifth Rockney cast. You know, they say that in order to be a podcaster, you have to do at least seven. A lot of of people fail. I don't get past sevens. I'm only at five, so stay with me, people. Stay with me. And with every Rockney cast, we're going to continue our tradition of giving you both book and movie recommendations in connection with the topic. So for those of you who don't have time to dive deeply into a book... Um, There's a really good documentary on American experience about Robert Kennedy, and it really covers a lot of topics, his transformation, of course, the speech of April 4th, 1968, and people that knew and loved Robert Kennedy. So I strongly encourage you to watch that. In terms of book recommendations, I strongly recommend Evan Thomas, Robert F. Kennedy, His Life. Evan Thomas is a journalist at Newsweek, or was for a long time, and I've always believed that journalists are the best historians, or at least they make the most readable histories. So I have read that book. The words just jump off the page. It's so good. So I strongly recommend that. If you're more interested in Greek mythology and you want to learn about Aeschylus and the other Greek poets, and you want to impress your friends at a dinner party, you can read The Greek Way by Edith Hamilton. Now, there are some snooty academics that think that it's a little out of date, but I think the good stuff never goes out of date, including the Greeks. So read little Edith. She's, she's great. She knows a lot about the Greeks, and you'll have a lot of fun. And finally, I want to give a shout-out to my sister, Susie Cole. She gave me another recommendation for Robert F. Kennedy in terms of a book called In the Love with the Night, America's Romance with Robert F. Kennedy by Ronald Steele. So that's courtesy of Susie Cole. We're going to conclude with my brother-in-law, Corey Grimm, who, as I said, is one of the most talented singer-songwriters in the state of Iowa. And when he found out the topic of this podcast was Robert F. Kennedy, in particular his search for racial justice, redemption, and forgiveness, he shared with me a song that he had done that focused specifically on racial justice and reconciliation called Main Street and Fifth Avenue. And it is just as good as To Tame the Savageness of Mankind. Here it is, Corey Grimm taking us out with Main Street and Fifth Avenue. Thanks, friends of the Rockney cast, and I'll see you next time.
countryside that still exists and no disturbing trend. I might show you kindness, you might offer me a ride. But heads would turn if we became friends. They'd say we're much too different, our worldview is not the same. By all rights, we should be mortal enemies. Crossing ancient boundaries, drifting from our lanes, is like chopping down no familiar trees. But something draws us closer, a force we cannot understand Some kind of cosmic curiosity We are searching for directions to elusive promised lands Described by Moses and by Dr. King There are strongholds in the cities and fortresses and towns Always preserving what is comfortable and safe Foundations are eroding and old walls are falling down As we march together, keeping up the faith We will march together, keeping up the faith I will walk with you down Main Street or Fifth Avenue It doesn't matter what people say Small town, a city street, we'll smile at everyone we meet I wouldn't have it any other way We started spending time together Like normal friends will do At first we thought no one seemed to mind Your circle was accepting me Mine showed love to you But then we both got wounded from behind Obstacles to realizing peace. It's not the soldiers fighting on the other side. When you wake the white flag and hostility cease, you still might face the threat of friendly fire. My friend, you're worth the threat of friendly fire. I will walk with you down Main Street or Fifth Avenue. Doesn't matter what the people say. Stroll along without a care Even if they stop and stare And with each step we're overcoming hate We'll change the world on both Fifth Avenue and Main By their culture, class, and race We place them in our boxes Neat and nice We overlook the sacred stories Written on each face We dismiss the holy longings In their eyes When we make our judgments It's ourselves we idolize Sitting on our thrones Like manly deities In the waters of forgiveness Let us be baptized True communion, let us be set free. In true communion, let us be set free. I will walk with you down Main Street or Fifth Avenue. Doesn't matter what people say. Two of us make quite the pair. We stretch the bounds of savoir faire. Gather other friends along the way. 
we'll walk with you down Main Street or Fifth Avenue Doesn't matter what the people take Small town or city tree We'll smile at everyone we meet It wouldn't have it any other way We'll change the world on both Fifth Avenue and Main 